0: Hello and welcome to Trigonometry, I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantin Kissin. And this is the show for, well, this is slightly different. So what we're doing today is we've got this amazing interview with Douglas Murray, which in a few minutes you'll be able to enjoy for yourself. However, you might notice that it's actually a little bit shorter than our other interviews. And the reason for this is because we got interrupted by a wave of social justice warriors who came down, break, broke down
1: the door, started beating Come on, us. Francis. Why don't you just tell them what actually happened? Yeah,
0: the room was double booked.
1: Yeah. So what actually happened is we got the chance to speak to Douglas at at a secret conference, as you'll hear in the interview, and we only had the room for a certain amount of time. So if you feel like the interview gets cut off at the point where it starts to get really interesting, we agree with you. Uh, nonetheless it's a brilliant interview i'm sure you'll enjoy it Uh, and uh, when you see it uh, you'll see that we didn't quite get into everything that we wanted to talk about Uh, but we're very grateful to douglas for coming on the show and hopefully he'll come back and we can explore some of those other things in detail so with that in mind enjoy the interview
0: Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissing. And this is a show for you if you're bored of people arguing on the internet over subjects they know nothing about. At Trigonometry, we don't pretend to be the experts, we ask the experts.
1: Our brilliant guest this week is a writer, journalist and social commentator. Douglas Murray, welcome to Trigonometry. Trigonometry.
2: Good to be with you both.
1: Before we get into the interview, I just have to say to our viewers, you can see we're on location. We were at a secret conference here in Oxford, and uh, we've had the great uh, opportunity to speak with Douglas. So thank you for coming on the show. That's a great pleasure. Um, you have a lot of kind of hobby subjects that you often get asked about, and we're going to try and stay away from them okay. as much as we can. Uh, but let's start with the Roger Scruton affair, because it's mm. something that's quite recent. It's something you've written about, you were yep. heavily involved in, in fact. For anyone who didn't follow it, just tell us what happened.
2: Oh, yeah, the uh, long and short of it is that uh, the very distinguished British philosopher Roger Scruton, now in his mid-70s, author of more than 40 books on a range of subjects, aesthetics, philosophy, architecture, music, uh, gave an interview to a magazine in the UK called The New Statesman, and the uh, deputy editor of The New Statesman, one uh, George Eaton, uh, uh, misrepresented what had been said in the interview, lied about what had been said in the interview, and uh, caused Roger Scruton to be fired within five hours from the position he held, a non-stipendary, non, uh, an unpaid position, uh, advising a British government quango. And uh, this may seem all like, um, well, I suppose a lot of people, people who are not familiar with Scruton or government quangos, may think, well, so what? So what is that uh, I hold this very old-fashioned view, which is you shouldn't be allowed to just lie about people and get away with it. And this was one of the most blatant, flagrant examples of somebody doing that. In journalism, it can happen in other fields, trades as well, but one of the most flagrant examples I've seen in my life in journalism of somebody doing that. And I knew from the moment I read the uh, alleged quotes that they were untrue, because I've been fortunate enough to know Roger Scruton for almost 20 years now. And I know that he doesn't think that the Chinese are a people made up of weird robot automatons or something. I knew that it was wrong that this, this hack had said this. I looked into it, sure enough, Roger Scruton hadn't said that. He'd said that the Chinese Communist Party is trying to make the Chinese people into automatons. That's just a lie. And we are all, I think, sadly, for all sorts of political and other reasons, becoming used to a low standard of truth in public as in private life. But sometimes that comes right up to your door and you just got to stop it. So uh, I have worked quite hard over recent weeks to expose this scandal and to try to reverse it. And although Roger Scruton remains uh, sacked from that government role, it's now known and recognized widely uh, that uh, the New Statesman's deputy editor, George Eaton, lied, uh, misrepresented the contents of the interview, and that this was dishonest journalism at its worst. And so, um, so yes, I, um,
1: we turned it around a bit. And mm. one of the things in this affair that struck me particularly was that I think the journalist in question had tweeted or put something on his Instagram, which yeah. was a picture of himself swigging champagne yeah. for having achieved the firing of somebody yes. by lying about them.
2: Yeah, that's a, it's a particularly ugly thing to do after... After getting somebody fired from their job, he had—he had, he had uh, George Eaton had posted this photograph on Instagram. Uh, subsequently, uh, removed it, but uh, of him swigging champagne, saying the feeling you get when you get um, a, a, a racist and homophobe Roger Scruton fired from his government position. By the way, the um, uh, um, the homophobe claim was particularly interesting because. Uh, 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 the tape of the interview, which I subsequently acquired, um, showed that George Eaton himself said something which by his own lights would be homophobic. The question he put to Roger Scruton was, you've been criticised in the past for saying that homosexuality is not normal, but that's just a statement of the obvious. That's what George Eaton says. Roger Scruton then says, oh, well, no, when I say not normal, I mean it's not the norm in the same way that having ginger hair isn't the norm. So this journalist says something that is homophobic and then attributes the homophobia to the person who didn't say something homophobic, who's the target of his smear campaign. So it's a really interesting lesson. I think this happens sometimes in journalism. Uh, there, There are times when you can just see how the whole wretched hit job is done. And that's what I wanted to do. That's why I wrote a big cover piece in The Spectator a few weeks ago now. Called the anatomy of a hit job. Because, you know, I'm fortunate enough in this position because I knew the person who the accusations were being made about. But I mean I've been overwhelmed by messages since by, as you can imagine, by more people than usual saying, look, what's happened to me, and I've this has been said about me, and so on. And so, in a way, I think it's resonated with a slightly wider number of people than would normally be the case. Because I think we are all we've all been becoming familiar in recent years with the fact that. The media is not honest with very basic things. I'm not saying all the media. I'm not saying all the journalists. There are some fine journalists. But as, as the model of funding in journalism dies or at least stumbles very severely, it's sort of hollowed out. And I say this as a journalist myself. It's, 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 it's being hollowed out. And in the space of reporting and having to really stick very carefully to facts, um, there's been this melding, something's been happening, whereby an activist like this guy, George Eaton, can go in to try to take out an interview subject. And the aim of the interview is therefore not an interview. It's to do something else. And I think that a lot of people have noticed in recent years a, a tendency in uh, television and in print journalism, to move from doing the thing that you hold yourself out as doing, and to do something else. And once you work out what that something else is, um, it's very, apart from anything else, it's a scales from eyes moment, because after that people don't trust the media again.
0: And do you think this is a problem that arises mainly from the left or the right, or is it both ends of the political spectrum?
2: I think that can happen from any end of this political spectrum, I mean. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you're a fool to pretend that the right-wing <laughs> press hasn't been able to, you know, make a run of, uh, 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 of things in the past. I mean, I suppose one thing that is happening is that because of the age of social media and easier access to things that, that we now have the opportunity, doesn't always work, but you have the opportunity to, um, to, to, to unravel the thing in public. So it's not just the case that somebody can stitch somebody up and then there's no recourse. Mm. You know, there is now a possibility of showing people how it's done, which is what I did with the Scruton tapes. And, um, and I think that, I think that an old-style hit job from some decades ago, people didn't have the sort of recourse and you couldn't explain, you couldn't work out how it had happened. But I think it's more prevalent now. It's faster. But this is a good side, because there is always a good side to this stuff. You can, you can unpack it in public.
0: And Do you think that's why there's this widespread distrust of the media amongst the ordinary person? Because I've, I've been quite shocked. I talk to people mm. uh, uh, doing comedy a lot, and a lot of people go, yeah, I don't watch the BBC anymore. I don't watch Sky News. I can't trust them. I can't trust this person or whatever else.
2: Well, there's lots of reasons for that. And I think it's not just a trust thing. It, television news is a very bad way to absorb news. Mm. I mean, if you agree with this, I stopped doing it quite a long time ago, because um, like rolling news is a very bad way to get information. Uh, it's uh, repetitious, it takes far too long to unravel the, the, the information it's trying to give to you. Whereas if you click down on a website and just absorb the headlines, I mean, it could be the front page of the BBC website, you just see, okay, what are the five things that have happened? You can do that in that's 15 seconds. Whereas if you're watching a rolling news report, you've got you know minutes and minutes you're wasting. So part of this is just that we are finding better ways to discover news and uh, to keep up with things. So I, th- I think there's, there's that as well. I mean, I'm, I am struck by the fall-off in viewing figures. And obviously one of the big developments of our time is the fact that you can, you can do a very pro- what used to be a very prominent uh, uh, news program and get very few people watching. You can do a podcast, may, maybe even this one. With very few people watching. With very few people, <laughs> people <laughs> watching <laughs> as well, as well.
0: But they're the right people. It's, the right people are not watching, you mean.
1: <laughs> Thank you for watching. <laughs> uh, uh, what do you make of this? Uh, it seems to me like in recent years, the idea that rather than addressing people's arguments, we must just attack them as individuals seems to have taken on a whole new level. And racist, yeah. xenophobe, all yeah. this stuff gets thrown around so much now that it, mm. it's only, it almost feels like half the country are now racist and xenophobic, according to the, to the media.
2: Which of course has a danger, doesn't it? Because it means that maybe nobody is, or nobody can be plausibly accused of it, which mm.
1: will be a problem down the line, I would submit. Um, you mean down the line, when there are genuine racists, yeah. that label won't stick, because no. people will go, well, you called everyone a racist. Yeah, yeah.
2: I, I think that's already happening, by the way. Mm. I, I don't see it having the societal con- consequences it once had um, it's like if everybody's a misogynist, it's quite hard then to unravel or to discover somebody who actually is. you know. Um, so yeah, we've, we've been having a sort of era of hyperinflation in terminology, there's no doubt about that. Um, and it's noise and... and, and I, I don't take too much, uh, much of that stuff very seriously. Uh, and I think increasingly people are taking that less seriously. Um, The noise is so deafening that in the end you just have to step away from it, and that's what I I do. I I don't think people should seek it out at any rate, and I think they should try not to add to it. There's always been an an aspiration, certainly ever since the rise of the net, that that we would be able to have serious conversations across political lines, and I've been struck by what a failure it has been. Um, Actually, when I first met... Roger Scruton, it was because when I was just out of university, I'd written my first book, which was on literature, and I was taking a turn uh, towards politics. And one of my first job, my first internship, which then the lowest rung of the paid uh, ladder of paid journalism, was at a website that was aiming to bring right and left together. This is 18 years ago or so now. Aiming to bring right and left together, where we could argue out our views not on personalities or on you know the usual way in which these things go but on their most serious grounds to take each other's arguments as seriously as possible and uh, of course it was uh, well the first problem was that uh, I remember as Roger Scruton who had identified that I was not of the left said to me, it's about 40,000 leftists versus us. <laughs> and I remember him saying, so it is actually a fair fight. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> make of that what you will. But, but I remember that was the case then, they couldn't resist. I'm not saying the right can do this as well, there's not a left-right point, but on that occasion the left, they couldn't resist, they just wanted to keep throwing people at, like we've gotta not allow that argument to get out, we, we've gotta trample that down. And that just is—that that is the trend, I'm afraid, and um, I understand it, because one way to win is to pretend that you're not really playing the game, and then play the game, you know, and, uh, and that's been happening a lot in the years since, but yes, I mean, we were always, the whole point of you know, the, the, the uh, um, optimism some people felt in the era of the internet was, you know, we can have face-to-face interactions, and we can respect each other. more, <laughs> Yeah, and you laugh rightly.
0: Oh <laughs> uh, yes, well we've all experienced Twitter, haven't we? But do you think this is an intimidatory tactic? Is it? Is this a way just to shut down debate and therefore get you make sure that you have your own views to be heard without opposition from anybody
2: else? Uh, possibly, yeah, just to win. Um, I'm surprised, by the way, that it works so well. I'm. Um, There's an odd thing in our time where people are. People seek virtue points by suffering. It's a very very strange thing in our society. People used to uh, admire people for heroism, and now they admire them for suffering. Mm. So the more you can claim to have suffered, the the more admiration you'll get, and the more you'll be allowed to do. Mm. It's a very strange inversion, and there's all sorts of reasons for it. But it means that in the social media wars and in the political wars, there's this... um, Fascinating thing where people now boast about the offense they get they boast about the online abuse. You know we see every day? uh, Oh, I I, I get so much abuse So I mean doesn't first of all it doesn't mean you're right That's a very important thing to bear in mind just because you've got a lot of people being really rude about you does not mean you're right Doesn't mean they're right either but so there's this strange auditioning for respect by being the most insulted person in the village,
1: <laughs> It's odd, it's very <laughs> odd. And it's also very misrepresentative, you take the example of David Lammy, who, right. who called uh, the ERG uh, and Tories, he didn't agree he with He said the they were bit. worse than the Nazis. Worse than Nazis, not, not just Nazis, n- yeah. worse than the Nazis. Yeah. They haven't killed six million Jews, they've killed more than <laughs> yeah. the yeah. ERG, yeah. clearly, in David Lammy's view. Yeah, exactly. And he said that, then he got a bunch of stuff on Twitter. Some of it was horrific and racist. And he then, as you say, used 10 messages on Twitter from some idiots Mm. as a way of legitimizing the point of view that he made Mm. and said, well, look, look, this is what I'm talking about.
2: Everyone's doing that now. Yeah, I'm incredibly bored of it. Um, Everybody goes in public and says, oh, look about the abuse I got. Well, first of all, by the way, I mean, I don't seek to find how abused I am on any day. It has no interest to me at all. If I started self-googling and checking what people have said on Twitter, well, first of all, I wouldn't get any writing done, I wouldn't get any reading done, I wouldn't see my friends, and I wouldn't have a meaningful life. So, I'd rather do those things, among many others, than be writing Douglas Murray into Twitter and reading (laughs) what somebody has said from their mother's basement. And but, I'm, but you know, I could do, I just, I wouldn't, because it, it doesn't mean you've won the argument. And this, this appeal, by the way, there's another thing, which is, it makes people, first of all, it makes people um, imbibe some of the attitudes of their aggressors, which I think is, you know, you see it, people are a bit put upon. That, that you, some people, you know, they're going, it's not what you read about me online. And I'm not reading about you online, you know. <laughs> um, we're not as absorbed about you as you are about yourself. And 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 there's, there's, there's all sorts of personality defects you can see it, 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 it causes. And um, I just I also think that people should be stronger. I uh, I think I actually mentioned to you yesterday at this conference. I, I'm I'm worried by this thing, for instance, of people who say that they're opposing anti-Semitism, doing it and boasting about how much abuse they get online for saying that. That they're against anti-Semitism. And then you have examples, they don't want to single anyone out, but this sort of, this, um, this appeal to victimhood catches on. Uh, you get things like there was a Labour MP uh, called Ruth, uh, Ruth um, Smith, is it? Uh, who, anyhow, she was at a, a meeting with Corbyn about anti-Semitism a couple of years ago. And there was some low-grade trade union guy who's a notorious nutter who (laughs) sort of stands up at some point in the thing and she says something and he says something about her that's rude and she says it's anti-Semitic and she leaves the meeting in tears. And then everyone writes these pieces saying, brave Labour MP forced to leave meeting in tears after anti-Semitism incident. I think, no, no, that is not the way to respond to that. If you're sitting at a meeting and I say, okay, she's a woman, I don't know why that should mean she can't do this or or why anyone can't do this. It doesn't matter. If a man to a woman, a woman to a man, woman to a woman, man to a man. If somebody's going to go at you uh, for being Jewish and say something anti-Semitic, don't leave the meeting in tears. Turn right round to that person and give that bastard what he deserves. But it's like everybody has imbibed this idea that to win would be to visibly suffer in public. No, to win would be to turn it round on the aggressor and make them lose. That would be the way.
0: Do you not think that it's the easy option that what we're going for now? It's far easier to claim that you're a victim, to cry, to walk out, to be in tears, than to actually go toe-to-toe, metaphorically speaking, and win an argument. Sure,
2: very much so. Well, because also if you go um, toe-to-toe, you might have to change your mind. I mean, that's another thing. That's the really important thing about actual dialogue, uh, is the possibility that uh, you'll change your mind. I think there's something, by the way, there's, there's something very interesting in this, um, Brett Weinstein was with us uh, uh, in recent days, and uh, um, Brett and his brother Eric, both of whom I'm very fond of and very, um, admire hugely, are both of the political left. Um, you can have a discussion with them about anything, and you know they're not going to try to pull a fast one on you ideologically and suddenly make you vote Hillary Clinton. <laughs> yeah,
1: so he's like, I'm very
2: confident. I'm very confident. So. And so often when I meet friends like that, friends of the left and others, you know, I just sort of think, I always think, I wish, I wish all conversations could be like this. I wish we could just talk about what the situation is. I wish the adults could actually get together in a room. And the interesting thing is though, is that if there's even one person in the room trying to do something else, nobody can do it. That's the thing, one of the things I've learned in recent years has been, um, Let me put it this way, like if you were having a discussion about the theory of evolution and you were pointing to problems in the theory of evolution, like things we still don't know how it works, you could have that conversation really fascinatingly with a load of people at a really high level. But if there was one person there who was trying to do intelligent design on you when you weren't looking, you wouldn't be able to have that conversation because you'd know somebody else had some other intent. Mm. And I think it's become like that on almost every issue in our culture. We'd, there are lots of things we could really do with talking about, but we, we can't do it because there's always one person in the room, maybe not on this occasion, mm. <laughs> but there's always one person in the room who, whose real aim is when you're not looking, to mm, smuggle in some left or right wing politics, or some religion or anti religion, or whatever, and there's, if there's just one person playing a different game, the whole game can't be played.
1: Well, the game we try and play on this show is actually just to have the, the, our guests and give them an opportunity to say whatever it is that they, they, they find interesting mm. and we find interesting, unfiltered. Uh, and obviously, the, the major issues that you have talked about your book and and generally that you're Known to many people for, is it's, um, books. It, by the way, I'm sensitive <laughs> about this. I, yes, <laughs> I, um, occasionally people say, "I've got
2: another book coming up next uh, in September," and uh, some people say, "You know, your second book." And I think like sixth.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> we authors
1: mind that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I do. I, I know exactly. What I, 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 no. I, but I. But I think it's fair to say that the strange death of Europe has been a particular. Yeah, it was, big it,
2: was, one it, was, it was. It was. It's, it sold more than my book on Northern
1: Ireland. Surprisingly, to to everybody, yeah. Uh, And um, before I ask you about that, actually the thing I wanted to ask you is I remember watching you probably on Question Time seven or eight years ago, it would have been now.
2: Probably the last time I was invited on.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And I'll be honest with you, I don't know whether you have changed or I've changed, but at the time I remember thinking, who is this angry right winger that they've Mm. got on the show? Mm. And you strike me as the opposite of that. And Maybe Mm. I've moved away from the left to the center so much Mm. that... You don't strike me as mm. quite that Robin, but you also <clears> seem to be quite mellow, and you have a sense of humour. Now, what's changed for you? Well,
2: I've always had a sense of humour, <laughs> haven't always shown it, maybe. Mm. Uh, you probably have moved, <laughs> and I probably have moved. Mm. Um, I mean, it'd be very boring if we just assumed positions in our life and stuck to them till the grave. Um, I think. I think one of the things. Uh, uh, I mean, I'm um, I'm 39 now, and that's not very old, but it means, because I started my career very early, it means I have had some kind of public profile for 20 years or more. And um, there are certain things you learn along the way. Uh, there are certain edges that get knocked off you along the way. Uh, I have a friend who once said to me, um, do you, uh, you must get less nervous with time, with public appearances and television. I said, no, it gets worse all the time. <laughs> Infinitely worse. And she said, but why? And I said, well, because the more you do it, the more you know how many things can go wrong and how many ways they can go wrong. And I have this stand-up comedian friends and others tell me the same thing. Actors tell me the same thing. You start off thinking, go on stage and just do my bit. And then, you know. There are all these things that go wrong, like the curtain doesn't come up, or the you know the prop isn't there, and then you start to get nervous about the right. whole things. So, so there. But the point is, is, that's not only a negative. There's also lots of things you just learn because you've done it a lot, and I mean, it's one of the great things of experience. Um, I, I think I've, among other things, learned what fights are worth having and which are not, or oh, at least to choose your fight choose them wisely, choose, have meaningful ones, don't get unnecessarily bogged down in ones that, yeah, that aren't worth going in for. Um, I think on some things I'm probably slightly more mellow because I've accepted the catastrophe of where we are and I think that's worth considering.
1: This is what I was gonna ask you because I, I, I was worried that that would be your answer. Because the book, the, the Strange Death of Europe, it is a book that struck me simultaneously as being very accurate and incredibly depressing at the same yes, time. Yes, sure. Uh, and Should have tried writing it. <laughs> 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 and, and so I, I suspected that one of the reasons that maybe you come across as more mm. humorous and more mellow is that you've accepted that there's not much, though, we're going to be able to do about some of the problems you've identified.
2: Yeah, um Some things you can do, but you also have to work out at some point for your own well being what it 's worth hitting your head against a wall for and what it isn 't, and to some extent also if you 've um done what you can um, i don 't feel like i mean i 'm not moving away from you know ne- it 's not like i 'm never going to write or speak about any of the things i 've written about in recent years, but I do feel that You know, once you've said it enough, you think, I don't want to just keep saying that and maybe I've said what I can and issued whatever warnings I can and analyzed it as well as I can, explained it as well as I can and if that hasn't done the job, then okay.
0: And how do you come to that decision about what to speak about? Because when I look at you from Mm. the outside, you come across someone who's actually quite fearless with mm. the way you address certain topics especially mm. there's certain things people won't even talk about in, even with amongst their friends yes. when they know there's no one around
2: well, those, are the, those are the ones that are really worth doing <laughs> <Yeah>. but <laughs> do you are.
0: see but the, of course they are and they're really important how do you make that decision of this needs to be discussed and we're not doing it and i'm going to be the person to do it
2: well i don't do it particularly strategically i think there's several things one is uh, I don't know, you, you may have this yourselves, but there are some things that just get under your skin and you can't quite see how it happens or the order in which they come in. The Scruton one, the way it started, got under my skin because this was a terrible lie and it was being said about a friend mm. and somebody I, I admire. So I just, there's no way I was gonna have that. Um, but that can happen from in funny ways. Um, I I think that a good instinct in general, if anyone who wants to be a writer, is to have an aversion to lies. And I... I, Now, you may say, that's an awfully target-rich environment you're talking about there, but there will be some that will get under your skin more than others. and You won't be able to know... You won't be able to... Or at least you're in a very bad position yourself to analyse what it is that particularly gets under your skin. But there just are things that you can tolerate more than other things. So, you know horoscopes don't thrill me. (laughs) But I don't feel like they're strong enough and doing enough harm that I need to campaign against them very much. Things that do come across your path and start to cause harm to things you care about and lies that affect things you care about, you will. So we all let some lies go by. but there'll be some which, for instance, you know more about than most other people or maybe anyone else, and you'll go, no, 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 I've got to correct that. And other things will just be ones you particularly care about, and um, we all have different orders of priority on that. So I don't think it's strategically chosen or anything. Um, but, but, you, but it is interesting always to notice what are, I mean, most writers are in some way interested in dogma. What are the dogmas? You know, there's no point in just being a writer and firming up dogmas. One of the points of writing is to get to truth, the main point. And that means identifying accidentally or deliberately the things of your day that you're not meant to do and doing them or at least looking at them and saying, what is it about this thing that makes it so sacred? Now, I'm very fond of a quote from H.L. Mencken who said at some point in the 20s somewhere that, you know, human progress was only ever achieved, I'm not, I'm not myself a great fan of the idea of human progress, but park that for now, that yeah. it was only ever achieved by, as he says, um, jolly fellows heaving dead cats into sanctuaries and going roistering along the highways of the world. Mm. And I, I've always wanted to, um, to encourage dead cat heaving <laughs> <laughs> into sanctuaries. And, It's so funny because every era has taboos and every era has dogmas and religions. And it's so funny when people don't realize that they are the dogmatists and the ultra-religious and indeed, as we now have, the Puritans. (laughs) (laughs) They do not realize they're the Puritans.
0: Absolutely not. And what do you think is one of the great lies of our age that we haven't addressed yet? Or maybe we just simply too scared to.
2: I think there's whole slews of them. Uh, I don't know where to start. I mean, there's so many. I think there are so many presumptions of our age that I, I don't accept myself and would run against. I, I think there are ones that are causing us enormous pain. It's very interesting if you look at the tick list of what are the issues which whenever anyone treads on them, they blow, they're blown up. Hmm. Um, they all have the same thing in common which is the society is demanding you agree to something that is, it's, not, it's not possible to agree to and keep your self-esteem or at least be able to look at yourself in the mirror so the most obvious one is everything to do with gender and sex um, that's why trans keeps tripping people up Such a small issue, such a small Mm. issue, such a minority of a minority issue. But it keeps tripping people up because they just don't want to say the thing they're being told to say, which is that there is no difference between men and women and that we can migrate between the sexes and that our bodies are like pieces of Lego you can just stick bits onto and then if you don't like it, you can take it off again. There's, you know, there's something because there's something demoralizing about agreeing to lies. This is different, by the way, from just custom or politeness or being decent to people. Because we all should aspire to being polite and decent to people, but being invited to engage in a lie ends up demoralizing you. I I don't know if you've ever, you know, communist countries. That was one of the things I've often. Thought. I've only been to a couple of countries still trying that wretched experiment, but um, those who traveled a lot behind the Iron Curtain or lived behind it, often commented on the, the needless things they were persuaded to agree to lie about. And people often wondered, why, why am I being made to agree to this next implausible thing? And the answer really was, because it'll demoralize you further, And it'll make you less willing, even than you were before, to think of yourself as an individual with any worth. Mm. So that's the plan. And I don't say that that's organized. I just think that it's, it's subtle that people slip into it. And I think in our own society, we have to be really careful. I like heretics. I like dissidents. I like the people who say the thing that no one else will say. I admire it. And... Uh, and i think that i think we have to be very careful as a society we don't slip into on that issue on gender on sex sexuality indeed that we don't slip into a, a sort of a load of untruths which basically will just demoralize us because the truth is is energizing you know that's that's one of the things like oh such a relief such a relief not to have to lie
0: no it's true that's why when you go going to watch a comedy show when somebody's honest about a particular you can feel there's an electricity in the audience yes people lean in they crave yes. it
2: mm. well and, and that's obviously comedy is one of the best tools for this which because you can't not the laugh the yeah. laugh of recognition you can't stop, I mean I like that thing when audiences laugh and then <laughs> try, oh, I, shouldn't have, yeah. I shouldn't have laughed at that. Yeah.
1: I'll be honest, as comedians, we don't like it <laughs> <laughs> when on their laughter. Yeah, as you're sitting, uh, looking
2: I, at... I it. have, yeah, I have yeah. certain lines I use which I know are going to cause an audience to laugh and then do an intake of breath and try to pretend they didn't laugh. <laughs> it's a wonderful feeling. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you've laid a trap for them.
1: Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. So, uh, sex and gender, what else? What else are we, are we refusing to talk about, honestly?
2: Oh, wow. We don't have any basis for our morality. How about that? It's a biggie. Um, our whole metaphysical system is in serious flux, and we're pretending it isn't. Because we no longer have God? Uh, going from belief in God to non-belief in God as a society is one of the biggest changes that can happen. I'm a non-believer myself, but I think it's very unwise of non-believers to pretend that it's all just business as usual. Very unwise. I mean, obviously there's an attempt to have business as usual by doing human rights. Rights. So many rights. (laughs) Look at all my rights. (laughs) I want more rights, and these people should have even more. That's uh, What are they based on? Where do they come from? Who gives them to you? Who can take them away? Um, what's the idea of equality and rights really does that work I mean there's so much there's so much in this and we have I think we've been sort of the subject of my next book in part I I think we've been trying to to put a new metaphysics underneath the society in order to reassure ourselves that it's business as usual when it isn't but you know there's just there's just a whole load of questions you have to ask down the road from that. I, I come across it in, occasionally in um, social issues. Um, there's one I've written about a few times of euthanasia, which I'm always interested in the, the, because it's a very ugly, difficult, unpleasant subject. And people have pretty strong views about it. And you can very easily show them this problem of what happens if you don't have fixed values even as aspirations or when for instance you turn everything into a right and one of the rights becomes your right uh, to kill yourself like that's a new right, a final right last right and you go right okay and then you have people as I've come across in the Netherlands and Belgium who are campaigning for the right of children to have euthanasia or people who are mentally ill to have euthanasia, which happens of course on the continent, happens in Belgium and in the Netherlands. So it's a right to say you're mentally ill and we completely respect you and indeed we think that mental illness is exactly on a par with physical illness as the British government currently says it wants to regard this as being. And. One of the great things that we're going to fight for is that you can kill yourself (laughs) with the state's help at any time. Wow. I mean, my editor at The Spectator, Fraser Nelson, has a really interesting challenge which I sort of pass on because I think it's... He says, since every era has its taboos, and, no, since every era is doing things... Since every era has always done things that are just... Historically, you look back and you think that is nuts. Why did they do that? Assume we're doing some things like that ourselves, rather than the first group of people in human history <laughs> yeah. to do nothing mm. nuts. We have, and like, but, sorry, but mm. identify them. Try to identify what they might be now. That, like us thinking, why did Victorians use children as chimney sweeps? <laughs> They're very, <laughs> very small. They're very small. <laughs> yes. Perfectly got logical. It. Yeah. It's perfect. Yeah. That's amazing we don't start again. Yeah. I, I'm, and, but you know, what are the things? We must be doing things. I'm very sure we're doing things. I, I can t- tell you. I mean, the one I've just given you is one. Of course we're doing things that people are going to look back on, we might look back on in our lifetimes and think,
0: what were we thinking? To me, one of the things, and this is from an outsider's point of view, is this a situation at universities,
1: where hmm. essentially
0: we're censoring people for their ideas, you know, and then yeah. you see academics attacking one another. You
2: know, well, that, one... that's that's not new. Yeah. <laughs> is that not new? Academics attacking each other. <laughs> yeah. to stop the press. Yeah. Um, I'm a little, I'm a little wary of the campus wars for lots of reasons. One is it can often seem to be a rather rarefied you know, uh, issue. Um, most people still don't go to university. Most people, you know, um, are not you know, their lives go on without reference to the campuses of our countries. Um, so I, I, I worry about, sometimes, about the overstating, I worry not about the overstating, because it can't be overstated, but the, the, the over-focus on it, because I think just a lot of people in their lives have exactly the problems that people are talking about on university campuses outside of campus, and with no reference to campus, never having been on a campus. So um, I, I think the reason why the university stuff does matter and I mean but a second sorry another second caveat which is also students have you know not always but been nuts for a long time <laughs> on certain yeah. issues like like a National Union of Students, like when did anyone think they would be a centrist, sensible body? <laughs> you, know, you know, so like, okay, there's some stupid kids trying some stuff out, and they'll grow up and become Labour Party MPs, like all, <laughs> like all other uh, NUS <laughs> leaders. But, you know, so in a way, it's like, it's, it's, it's um, dog bites man. Mm. I, think that, I think that's a legitimate um, complaint, to have, or a legitimate suspicion to have. The, 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 the bit that does matter in the campus one is mm-hmm. y- y- universities should be places for genuine free inquiry where people follow truths to whatever the end might be. Um, sort of the aspiration of, um, I think that writers should aspire to as well. When I wrote my book on Bloody Sunday, I. I didn't know it would lead me to the conclusion it did, but it did because I discovered what the truth was along the way, and actually it was very uncomfortable to write at times. But, you know, if you're interested in pursuing the truth, that's what you'll do. And I think that those of us who would like to think that universities would remain places that do that, in in the social sciences as much as in the sciences, are... It just doesn't seem like a great a great biopsy for a society if the places where thought is meant to be best protected from the mob turns out to be most vulnerable to the mob, or at least very vulnerable to the mob. I find that's that's where we should be worried about the universities, but I think there's a very simple answer to that, which is that universities should be defunded. I see no reason whatsoever that if a university cannot stand up for academic freedom, that ordinary people in our country or any other country should be paying any of their taxes to maintain these third-rate institutions. I think they should close. I, I see no, no, no point in keeping them open. I think that in reality we've probably got too many universities in this country anyway. I think they've turned into business models, particularly business models trying to get money from foreign students who they charge huge sums of money to to enrich themselves and give very little care to quite often. That's a big thing. That's a thing everywhere. Um, But if there are institutions that cannot pursue academic freedom, then fine. We will not fund them and finance them. There's no reason why uh, money should go to universities forever if they can't do the one job that we would uh, expect them to do.
1: One of the caveats you made there is about, well, these students will grow up and become Labour MPs. Mm. Uh, and this was one of the arguments that was kind of thrown against me when I refused to sign the SOAS behavioural agreement mm. form that they sent me, that why are you picking on these poor students? Students are always a bit silly. They'll grow up and everything will be fine. And mm. my worry with that kind of approach is that uh, I am not so sure that given the kind of social justice mania that seems to have overtaken some of our mm. universities, that when they grow mm. up and become Labour MPs and become <laughs> our, our our judges and become mm. our lawyers and mm. become our journalists mm. and authors mm. and writers, that mm. they won't bring intersectionality with them to a very oh, yeah, extent. Yeah, no,
2: they will. But that's already, come, that's already come ahead of them. Yeah. I mean, what is... What is one of the most surprising discoveries for me of recent years? But the discovery that the sort of intersectionality car crash is not a campus thing. It's it's every uh, corporation is doing this crap. Every government department is doing this crap. It's amazing, you know. And it's happened very fast. So that wave has already come ahead of them. Um, Yes, I mean I'm I'm not by any means saying these people can't and won't do damage throughout their lives in new and inventive ways. Uh, I assume that. Mm-hmm. By the way, a friend of mine always points out that you should assume that the stupidest contemporary of yours will end up in the cabinet. <laughs> you should assume that. You should assume the person you last saw lying in a school playground will end up being in some important position in public life. The one, the one that you've got to watch out for in this friend swears it happened to him was that somebody he last saw at primary school cheating in a test turned out to be his surgeon. And he said that was a very, he said it's fine for everything other than your doctor. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, if, if, the, uh, if the stupid students become doctors, we've got a problem. But in my experience, medics are among the few that have escaped the madness. Anyhow, no, um, the, the specific one of, of your experience of SOAS, by the way, is I mean that's just that's just one of these health this is one of these health tests, isn't it? Because it's like there, these these things erupt in such strange ways in in such unpredictable, well sometimes like so as rather predictable places. But the <laughs> the it's just it's just as another bad health test, you know. Um but I I mean I'm not one one thing I've I've learned in recent years has been that you You've got to be careful what thinks it has a hold over you. So um, when, if, if you're going to do a gig at SOAS, and you were doing a charity gig, weren't you? So right. it's not like you had an enormous desire to go to that awful campus uh, and uh, amuse people for your own enormous financial gain. But I've noticed that there are institutions, uh, universities are one of them, which when they think they have something over you, then strike like a scorpion. They can't get you until the moment they think they can... They've got you. that You've got a point of vulnerability. Like, he so wants to come to SOAS to, to, <laughs> to, to, to amuse our incredibly unamusing students. <laughs> and um, now we've got him. It's, it's this sort of way it goes. I think again, I think I mentioned to you yesterday my... My general thought with universities is like that, is that, you know, it's not... I take the same view Jermaine Greer takes. It's not like an enormous... It's not something I enormously want or seek in my life to be invited to speak to student unions at various universities across this country or America or anywhere else. None of my self-esteem relies upon it. None of my sense of self-worth relies upon it. And I don't know that I'll gain very much myself from doing it. So... I'm not likely to put myself in the situation often of them thinking that I want that because I don't um, but if they think you do and then they will find a way to punish you for it
0: and you mentioned about intersectionality being crap uh, why why is it what, what? why do you disagree with it what are the flaws in, the, in its thinking
2: well I've actually been reading a lot about this uh, and I think it should be taken seriously because it's a It's, on its own lights, it's a pretty serious attempt to restructure everything. Um, In brief, it's not going to work. And it's not going to work for what are already very evident reasons. Um, Everything runs against everything else. That's one of the biggest ones. Why is trans so painful? It's painful because it runs against gay and women, just for starters. Just for starters. So, this idea that you have different interest groups, all of which, you know, I say it's, like it's meant to lock in like this. You know, once like the thing they got from the, uh, uh, the, well, the post war left was that, you know, the sort of life was sort of a web which you had to unweave. And, but they've got this idea of the interlocking se- uh, um, sections of society. It'll go in like that, and then, and then we're, we're sort of Nirvana. In fact, it's all coming in at this horrible angle, and as I say, the trans one is an important one because people haven't worked this out yet, I think, but if you take what has been the presumption of recent decades about what homosexuality is, and that in itself is a bit of a presumption, which I won't go into now, but it's it's an interesting presumption. Uh, It is that uh, uh, gay people are born this way, but um, the trans thing says an effeminate young boy might not grow up to be a gay man, but may need surgical intervention and be turned into a girl. Now that is very, very destabilizing for gay men. The idea that a tomboy girl is not gonna grow up to be a heterosexual girl or a happy, healthy lesbian, but, is somebody who could be medically experimented upon to turn into a male with skin grafts from the arm to try to create something similar to a penis. That's very undermining to gay people. Very, very undermining. And that's on a minority onto a minority with women. I mean, women have (laughs) fought and campaigned and argued for decades to get to the stage where they have not any equal rights but are allowed to be not conforming to what men think women ought to conform to being. And then you get trans over that. What's one of the striking things about trans? That so many trans male to females behave like, dress like, look like, parodies of womanhood that's a really big problem it's very very offensive to an awful lot of women who don't think that for instance being a woman means looking kind of like a porn star or here's another example one prominent trans male to female figure who was on a panel a little while ago sits on the panel and gets out her knitting right When did you last see a woman knit in public? (laughs) Right. So it's like, gosh, gosh, women are thinking, I know, they're telling me. (laughs) It's gonna be that? That's what womanhood is? I thought we got past this. So, intersectionality was meant to mend us all. It was meant to bring all of this together, and all of the injustices of the world were going to be nicely cohered. No, no, it doesn't work. Because the whole thing doesn't fit because it can't. It all runs against each other. And it's a catastrophe
1: already, and is going to get much, much worse. We saw that school in, I can't remember, it's somewhere up north in Birmingham, I think it might be. It was a Muslim school uh, mm. that was, uh, I think they were, banning teaching about homosexuality, Mm. because that's what the parents wanted. Mm. And you could just see the the radical leftist heads just exploding, because it's an oppressed group oppressing another oppressed group.
2: Yes, yes, that's one I've um, pointed out a fair amount in my time. Um, It was one of the first things in the early 2000s that I noticed that got me interested in the Islam thing, which was, um, this runs against other minorities and uh, I'm, I'm very struck by the fact that so many people are now catching up with that, but yes one minority group plus another does not equal harmony may equal the opposite.
1: Well particularly in the case of Islam where a lot of the attitudes that are within that community and faith are very strongly against gay people, women etc right? Yes,
2: uh, all of the, um, all of the uh, studies suggest that um, That all of the studies suggest that there is not that much uh, um, uh, uh, sympathy within the uh, uh, Muslim communities for homosexuality. In fact, several studies show zero tolerance, literally zero Muslims in Britain. Percentage of Muslims in Britain believing that homosexuality is acceptable. Um, I'm I'm past you know pointing this out. I've pointed out an awful lot, and I've had an awful lot of grief for making that observation, among others. Personally, I'm in a slightly Marxist way, quite pleased that other people are now meeting these contradictions.
1: Hmm, because you've been talking about it for a long time, and it's vindicated. Feels like that.
0: And well, we've we've run out of time, sadly, Douglas. We could have done this all afternoon.
2: Uh, we always been... Douglas wouldn't want to do it. No, 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 that's yeah, yeah, true. It's not that big an honour. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that wasn't a joke, by the way. <laughs> That was a statement of fact. Douglas
1: Murray destroys trigonometry, that's what you want.
0: Yeah, we'll put that underneath, this wasn't an honour. But um, Douglas, uh, the the question that we always finish with is, uh, what is the one thing people aren't talking about, but really should be talking about?
2: Uh, My next book. Okay. (laughs) 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 Which is? It'll be out in September.
1: Perfect. Fantastic. Well, as always, uh, uh, follow us at TriggerPod on all the social media. Douglas, you're on Twitter as well, and pretty active there. Just remind everybody. No, at, handle um,
2: I'm at Douglas K Murray.
1: Douglas K Murray. Uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Click the bell button, next subscribe button, and uh, thank you very much. We'll see you in a week's time.
0: Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Bye bye.